0: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, it is my pleasure to speak with my friend and colleague, Laurie Marceau, about her new book, Hot Off the Duke University Press's Politics with Beauvoir, Freedom in the Encounter. Marceau's book, which delves into Simone de Beauvoir's political thought and feminism, is a fascinating exploration of these topics and complexities. But Laurie takes Beauvoir's work even further. Connecting connected directly to Laurie's own analysis of Beauvoir's understanding of what Laurie calls the encounter as primary to one's freedom within political society and posits Beauvoir's political thinking into a number of important encounters that Laurie crafts within the text itself or that are derived from Beauvoir's work. I would like Laurie to explain more of this in our discussion, but first I will ask Laurie Marceau to tell us a little about herself And how she came to this particular project. Aspects of which she delineates in the acknowledgement. But I would love to hear her explain it to the listener. Hi Lori.
1: Hi Lily. Thanks so much for having me um, do this interview. It's such a great opportunity for me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. So for me the book is a book that I've wanted to write for a really long time. As I talk about a little bit in the acknowledgements, I learned about the work of Simone de Beauvoir when I was in school in London at the London School of Economics back when I was about 22 years old. And I came across uh, a lot of Beauvoir's books arranged in a display in the LSE bookshop. And I started reading one and got hooked. And instead of doing the work I was supposed to be doing for my master's degree, I started reading all of Beauvoir's novels and her autobiography and sort of tore through them and felt very connected to the, the way that she was thinking about politics, the way that she was talking about how she lived her life, um, what she thought about as important in terms of one's choices and political commitments. So it was a really long time ago that I started thinking about Simone de Beauvoir. Then when I was doing my PhD at NYU, I actually wanted to write my dissertation on her work, but I was told that maybe that wouldn't be the greatest idea since she's not really in the canon of political philosophy. My advisors were fabulous and I have nothing but gratitude for all the things they taught me, but they did make it quite clear that I couldn't write my dissertation on Simone de Beauvoir. So <laughs> It was a deferred project, and it's been a deferred project for a while, although I've been working Beauvoir into a lot of the things that I've been doing for a long time. So other books that I've published, I've I've um, had her work at some part of it, not in the center, though. So with this book, I have finally come to the possibility of being able to really use her work as the center, but also, as you explained in your introduction, move out from there as well. So I'm th- I think about this book as a book for Beauvoir scholars. I'm saying something new about her work. I'm thinking about her work in ways that are especially relevant for us today. I'm talking about her politics as a kind of politics That I see and I try to argue for in the book as exemplary. So I wanted to write the book for scholars of Beauvoir, people who knew her work, but then also for someone even for people who haven't read her work. And so I also explain Um, why I think Beauvoir is the thinker that we want to turn to today and try to um, make the work contemporary and relevant and exciting for all kinds of scholars and readers who are interested in not only political theory and feminist theory, but um, beyond that too, um, post-colonial uh, people who are doing post-colonial work doing work on race, doing work on film literature so I've, I''ve I've tried to do a lot in this book. I don't think it's too much I think it comes together, but it's been a project that's been I guess simmering for me <laughs> for several years and um, so I'm really excited that it's done and it's out there
0: and congratulations on the book I mean it's it's a it's a beautiful book and it's a really thoughtful book um, and I learned a lot from it. Um, so I would, I would love for you to take the listener through what your thesis, I mean, you have sort of talked around it a little bit, um, but what your thesis is in terms of Simone de Beauvoir's politics, especially this understanding of freedom, which is part of the subtitle of the book itself, and also what you talk about, particularly at the beginning of the book, in terms of her understanding of an individual's experience with regard to freedom.
1: Freedom is a central concept in the book. As you noted, it's part of the subtitle. I think that um, uh, some of the readings of Beauvoir that I've learned a huge amount from and that have guided me throughout several years of working on Beauvoir scholarship, however, have not quite captured in the way that I have tried to capture here, how and why freedom is so central to Beauvoir's politics. What I'm advancing as the main thesis about freedom is a simple one, is that we never experience freedom alone. That freedom demands another person in order for us to share it with someone else. The way that Beauvoir talks about this is that in her language, someone else has to take up your projects. You can't just experience freedom, even in a thoughtful way, all by yourself. You have to reach out to someone else and have that conversation, have that experience together. And so it's a collective sense of freedom. It's both agonistic and effective, I say, effective in the sense that it's about our emotions, our senses, our perceptions. It's also agonistic because we are always in a relationship of agonism with another person. Even, for example, if it's a, a mother and child, any relationship even of care can turn into a relationship of Danger. So there's this dynamic between two that is central to everything that Beauvoir is talking about um, throughout the way that she thinks about politics. And she thinks about politics much more expansively than a sense of politics, which is about uh, state, nation, government, voting, strictly political or structural. structural kinds of senses, although that is there too, but she expands what we think of as the political, reaching into what some would call the personal in order to show us how those relationships are political and why they are political. So the sense of freedom is always there. I think that freedom, other scholars have obviously recognized that freedom is central to Beauvoir, but there are liberal thinkers, for example, who talk about freedom in Beauvoir as a very liberal, individual sense of freedom. And that, I think, is wrong. It's just not, um, It's that reading of Beauvoir is not held up if you take a close look at what she is really talking about. And one of the reasons I think that some people miss that in Beauvoir is because they don't under, they haven't done The work of thinking about who Beauvoir was in conversation with. So the fact that freedom is never experienced alone and that that is in itself a political concept, because there's always more than one person experiencing, there's always more than one person at the center of freedom that makes it a political concept to a certain extent because that's so central to Beauvoir's politics I'm looking at the the people that she was in conversation with and how she developed her political vision on the world what she thought about was important to do in terms of political action and a collective sense of politics that we should be forging so I'm I was especially keen to think always about Beauvoir in conversation rather than reading her as formulating ideas entirely on her own in her head. I, she just, you can see from her autobiography uh, that she just didn't work that way. Um, So she, in her own life, was always in conversations with others. And those conversations had an enormous impact on the work that she did. And she acknowledges that in her whole, uh, in her oeuvre. She really makes that very clear that she's in conversations with others and that she's learning with them.
0: And, and you, you go through a number of those um, sort of conversations, whether actual or through written works or, in, in, you know, sort of correspondence. You, you delineate that so beautifully in the, in the book itself. But I, I want you to um, explain a little bit about the other part of the subtitle, which is your crafting of, of what you're talking about in terms of the encounter, as you call it. Why is this so vital to one's understanding of Beauvoir's thinking and her understanding of politics?
1: Two central cu- words in the the lexicon of Beauvoir philosophy are ambiguity and situation. Ambigu- by ambiguity, she means a kind of a two-ness, that we're always self and other at the same time, that no matter how I think about myself, I am always perceived by someone else as an other. So I might think of myself as enormously charming and lovely, and someone else might find me to be obnoxious and patronizing or something. Never, so, never. <laughs> but in any case, you get the idea. Yes. So that is the kind of sense of ambiguity. There's a lot of ways, other ways to to talk about ambiguity, but I think that's one that resonates with a lot of people, that we cannot um, shape our vision of ourselves. We cannot project it out into the world in the way with complete control. We don't have control over that. And and
0: which is very political also.
1: Very political, absolutely, because it depends on structural relationships. It depends on race, for example, primarily um, being a white woman and how I am perceived as a white woman in the world is part of my identity. It gives me advantages and gives me uh, a sense of, of power and mobility that even if I want to deny it, I have to recognize that that is a part of who I am to others as they see me in the world. So that's an example of ambiguity. Uh, Situation, which is another word in the Beauvoir lexicon that's really quite important, relates back to something that you said about structure. Uh, Situation is the sense for Beauvoir, that we are always in a situation. We're never um, outside of structural, embodied, political senses of who we are and how others perceive us. So structures like I was talking about, such as racism, sexism, all those ageism, all those structures influence. The encounter between two people um, as it is unfolding. And it has an effect on how each intimate encounter unfolds. So, situation and ambiguity are two um, terms that Beauvoir uses a lot. She uses them in the sex. Second sex. She uses them in the ethics of ambiguity. Those are her two probably most read theoretical works, and she explains quite thoroughly both those terms. I decided to think about Beauvoir in terms of this concept of encounter. After I was thinking much more about the ethics of ambiguity and how it influences the second sex, and Understand coming to understand that this idea of encounter, which to me captures, and this is what I try to explain in the book, it captures the gap between people better than ambiguity, I think. Ambiguity tends to sometimes in some scholarship get collapsed into an ethical register. And encounter is a way of seeing the very political core of every relationship between two people and the agonistic dynamic that is at its center. So even when Beauvoir talks about self and other, it is an an ethical relationship, but it's also a political one. And every time that two people are Uh, in relationship to each other, there is that that political moment, that in-between, that gap wherein we act, we make choices. And this is where her existentialism is quite prominent. There are situations, there are structures that situate us that that um, dominate, although they don't wholly determine the way that events unfold, but we still, in every encounter, make a choice. That choice, I think, is captured by the language of encounter better than it is captured by the language of ambiguity. Ambiguity makes it seem as if, if we had the right ethical stance toward the world, that our um, political problems might better they might dissolve they might be solved for us encounter has that more that sharper edge that is in her work and that i think help us understand not just there's not just a better term than ambiguity and situation but it helps us understand the way ambiguity and situation are articulated together within that encounter,
0: and so the encounter. I and I mean, I think you've done an amazing job just explaining it right there. But the encounter is also the the as you say, it's the point of engagement. Yes, um, as opposed to the conception or the theory of the um, engagement, and and so I I find that your own conception of this term, the encounter, is really, it's really fascinating in the way that you then follow that through the rest of the book where you put um, Beauvoir in encounters with people she actually did encounter, um, or you put her thought, um, I I sort of talked, I thought about it as a kind of mapping of her thought Mm -hmm. um, and analysis onto a variety of sort of cultural artifacts. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the first part you the first section that then follows the introduction, you talk about her her sort of encounter with Hannah Arendt's Eichmann in Jerusalem and um, Lars von Trier's film Antichrist, as well as a number of his other films. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in, in this context, in that first section, you're talking about her encounter in a certain sense with evil. In, mm-hmm. in certain, in some capacities and also with regard to representations of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Can you explain a little bit about why, first of all, you put those things together <laughs> um, and also about what they tell us about Simone de Beauvoir's political thought and to some degree her feminism there?
1: Yes, thanks, Lily. I like the way you put that um, encounter as a point of engagement. I think that's a nice way of saying it. And as you were talking about that, I was also thinking that I should Interject and add that it's also a moment of choice, and I think that that is a point of engagement, a moment of choice. Um, one thing about Beauvoir that that is very central for the way that she thinks about things is that we are always making choices, structures structures have a huge impact. Um, The the ethical and ontological um, condition of ambiguity has a huge impact on our behavior. Habits that we are, that we come to embrace are born of those two ways of understanding the world and the impact that it has on the way that we think about ourselves and our consciousness. Nevertheless, she preserves and wants to put emphasis on that there is always a choice. There is a moment of choice. And that is, just to back up just a little bit, that's that moment of freedom in the encounter. So that freedom has to be experienced with another, taken up by another, but that freedom is also um, captured by the moment of choice that we can do something otherwise than what we think we always have to do. And so I think that's important to think about in terms of encounter. So you asked me about the first section of the book on Arendt and on Lars von Trier and the encounter with evil. After I had thought a lot about the encounters that Beauvoir had and I was thinking about the way that they became so vivid for me as I over several years have been reading her work it suddenly came to me that I could think about them in terms of friends and enemies and the sort of Schmittian distinction which of course I don't accept as the conditions of the political because Beauvoir always complicates those and um, makes them less obvious as to who our friends and enemies are. I guess remembering what Plato said in Book One of the Republic, how do we know who our (laughs) friends and enemies are? So this this is an old kind of theme in the history of political thought. But Beauvoir actually... Ask those questions and and wants to think them through and so I started to think about how I could understand some of these counters in terms of enemies allies and friends and and suddenly that became a kind of Organizational motif for me for the book that really made sense so that first section on enemies is about this encounter with evil and I was working on the Arendt and Beauvoir chapter on um, Eichmann and Jerusalem and the short essay that Beauvoir wrote called An Eye for an Eye, which is about her description of the trial of Robert Braziak at his um, trial when he was sentenced to death as a traitor to the French. for his work as a journalist in identifying Jews in hiding and essentially printing their names in newspapers and making it possible for them to be rounded up and killed. At that moment when Beauvoir was at the trial, she, she then was writing an essay about the importance of judgment, which is another way of talking about this moment of choice at the point of engagement, and why she wanted to, first of all, make an argument that Brazioc should not be executed for treason, but rather he should be executed for violating the conditions of ambiguity that are ontologically and ethically central to human existence. So she doesn't care about treason. She didn't care about what the French state thought. She was actually quite engaged in talking about how the French state was trying to gain back its confidence and masculinity after German occupation. And she didn't want to be and she didn't want to have any part of that. But she did think that Braziac was guilty. And so she says he's guilty of these other ethical and human violations. And unlike some of her um, friends on the French left, she was unwilling to sign a petition that was going around saying that Braziak should not be executed by the state. As I was reading an eye for an eye again, and I've taught it several times in classes, I just started to think about what similarities and differences I could see in Beauvoir's argument in comparison to what aren't. Um, talks about with Eichmann in Jerusalem. Eichmann in Jerusalem is a much more familiar text to political thinkers. And barely anybody knows about an eye for an eye. So I thought that it would be really very um, productive to bring those two texts together. Um, And then I started to think about Arendt and Beauvoir together and was, I became more and more shocked actually that they have not, very often been read together. I think that there are um, some amazing resonances and differences in their work, but a lot of resonances. And they were contemporaries. So that whole section about judgment, I put in the enemies in the enemies chapter because personally. Arendt makes so clear in Eichmann in Jerusalem what it meant for her to travel to Jerusalem in 1961 and see Eichmann on trial. She wanted to see what evil looked like. And of course, she came up with um, a whole theory that most political thinkers are familiar with about um, how Eichmann was absolutely responsible for his crimes, and yet um, they are crimes that were absolutely different from any crimes that we'd ever seen before. And um, the way that she thinks about them, she thought that she needed to come up with a whole new way of understanding questions of judgment in relationship to how we judge someone like Eichmann. Beauvoir had much the same experience, um, even though Braziak was a very different kind of character than Eichmann. Braziak was not a banal character. Um, I mean, Eich- Arendt says Eichmann is a banal character who did evil, evil things, um, but Braziak was not a banal character. He was well-educated. He was a Nazi. He... Um, was very active in perpetuating the ideology um, of the Nazi party, but what Beauvoir, like Arendt, was was confronting at the trial was how do we judge these kinds of people, particularly for her as someone who was a fellow traveler with communism, and was always situating people's actions and the judgment of those actions within context that would take into account structural conditions such that one might say, had I been there, I might've done the same thing. So Beauvoir too had to, like Arendt, kind of revisit her relationships, like and unlike Arendt, because of course Arendt was um, Jewish herself and Beauvoir was not, but Beauvoir thinking about how can I judge someone and still hold them responsible for these actions within conditions that were highly unusual and horrific. So there was just a lot that I wanted to think about in relationship to the two of them and their writing of these essays and their thinking about this confrontation with evil and how to make judgments. Von Trier ended up in that section of the book because of another little known um, essay that Beauvoir had um, had worked on and was really fascinated with um, on Marquis de Sade, and Beauvoir went back to reading Marquis de Sade and was reviewing some of his books, etc., and thinking about him in terms of these questions of evil, since he was. Considered an ultimate misogynist, someone who was violating every ethical norm possible, um, someone who uh, feminists could not be friends with. Beauvoir herself, though, um, takes a different approach to Dassault's writings and argues that what he is trying to do is think about ethical relationships on the level of collectivity. That's a whole other conversation that I won't get into. But as I was reading Beauvoir on Desaude, one thing that struck me the most profoundly was that here she was reading this misogynist and having a really different reaction and response than. I might have anticipated I was drawn to that essay i my way you of were thinking fascinated about,
0: in the book by it. I mean, it just leaps off the page the way you talk about it,
1: uh, yeah, I think that's I think that was my response and and I started to think about I I've been a a long time fan of Lars von Trier, in spite of the fact that he has been uh, called a misogynist, and Bonnie Honig and I put together a book on Von Trier's films, um, an edited volume with Oxford University Press. And so I thought a lot about Von Trier and always been very fascinated and drawn to the films of of Von, Von Trier. And I started to think about, you know, maybe the way that I'm thinking about Von Trier and one of the reasons I'm drawn to Von Trier might have something to say, or I, maybe I could think about it in relationship to the way that that Beauvoir is d- drawn to de So that's why Von Trier ended up in there. And I, as I started to think about Von Trier in terms that Beauvoir had set up in this essay on the Marquis de Sade, some things started to make more sense to me in Von Trier's films than they had before. I'd always been fascinated by them. I'd always been unsettled by them. I always felt like maybe a little bit of a bad feminist for <laughs> loving those films. And then I started to think, actually, maybe I'm not such a bad feminist. Maybe there's something more here. Maybe it is the um, conditions of bourgeois ideology themselves that Von Trier is criticizing. And laying out for us and getting us to think about it in a different way. Von Trier's women are central in his films. All his films are about women. Women are always the central characters. He There're lots uh, of
0: them. They're like there're lots There's so there are lots of them.
1: many. there's so many. <laughs> and they're so complicated and um they're so um to me attractive. I just find the way that he portrays his women, even when he portrays their um, ugly, difficult, masochistic um, uh, impulses and feelings, I still find that I've drawn to them for a lot of, of different Sometimes inexplicable, but in the book, I try to get at more why um, I think he's doing something else there than we might have thought. So he ends up in the enemies chapter. He also ends up, here in the friends friends chapter. (laughs) 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 You read this book very carefully, Lily. You're you're ahead of me. Yeah. So he ends up at the friends chapter as well, which I, I I thought was kind of fun. I didn't really point it out um, in the writing, but I I actually tried to turn Bontrager from an enemy into a friend.
0: Aha, so. uh-huh. There are subtle yeah. motivations there. <laughs> <laughs> so, moving from the enemy section to the allies um, section, and and you sort of and put. Uh, Beauvoir in in encounters that she also had um with regard to French colonialism, particularly with regard to the war in Algiers, um Algeria, and also her work um on the Boupacha rape piece um mm-hmm. and and Franz Fanon and America's complicated existence um in terms of her encounter with Richard Wright. Um can you discuss a bit, a little bit about the, you know, the sort of structure of this section of the book, um, this question of colonialism that she, you know, it's a kind of advocacy on her part, um, which is not always the norm for a political theorist.
1: One of the other central things that I wanted to get across in this book is that although Beauvoir is known for her feminism and she's known for the second sex and that plays, second sex plays a very central role in the book, but I also bring in these other more minor essays as I was just talking about in the enemy section, but although Beauvoir is known for her feminism, I wanted to make it clear that Beauvoir's feminism informs her larger maybe in is the wrong way to put it, a more expansive political sense that she has about solidarity, commitment, and collective action. So the influence of Beauvoir doesn't end at the second sex alone. Richard Wright and France Fanon were natural allies for her. She was engaged with the two of them personally. She was a good friend of Richard Wright when she came to the United States in 1947. She was like the Vogue magazine, I think it was, wrote this little essay called An Existentialist in America. And that was about Simone de Beauvoir being in the United States. That was, of course, when she had uh, the famous, um, infamous affair with Nelson Algren. I wrote about that affair and her Relationship to Nelson Algren in in another book, the Feminist Thinkers and the Demands of Femininity book um, that I wrote a while ago. But um, Richard Wright was really the most important counter, arguably, so was Nelson Algren. But that she had when she came to the United States, and Beauvoir had done her homework before she got here. She was she was reading about. Jim Crow, the Jim Crow South. She was reading about race relations in the North. She was very informed. And she wanted to learn about um, the history of the United States. Well, she had read about the history of the United States and and slavery and um, the Reconstruction period and um, the Jim Crow, and she wanted, though, to have experiences herself and see what race relations looked like and, and, and try and understand that for herself. And Richard Wright was um, sort of her ambassador to this world, um, in a sense. And she became very close with Richard Wright and his wife, Ellen, and um, spent a lot of time with him. When Richard Wright exiled himself from the United States and went to France, after he had had it race relations in the United States, um, Beauvoir was there to greet him and was um, very close to him in France as well. So this was a long relationship. It was a friendship that was very important to both of them. And there's a lot of documentation of this. Um, but also in terms of intellectual um, affiliations, Beauvoir wrote about Writes work in The Second Sex, for example, and um, was uh, thinking a lot about the relationship between race and gender. And then she was also thinking about race, gender, and colonial relations. Um, she obviously lived through the war in Algeria. It affected her very deeply. She writes about it quite um Poignantly, powerfully, and in a very smart way in her autobiography. She only met Fanon once, and this was with Sartre, and and they were introduced um, through Claude Landsman, another person that Beauvoir had a long relationship with, Claude Landsman, the director of Shoah. Um, And when she met Fanon, she was very struck by his um, commitments, his energy, his uh, way of framing things, and particularly his the responsibility that he felt in representing and talking about um, the war in Algeria. And of course, Sartre went on and wrote the Introduction to Wretched of the Earth, and that came of that encounter. But I wanted to think about um, Beauvoir's work in relationship to Fanon's work as well, because there's so many resonances there. Um, Lewis Gordon, in his book on what called what Fanon said, which he published just a few years ago, he talks about how um, Fanon was. Absolutely influenced by um, Simone de Beauvoir's work, and had her books. Um, he had written in the margins of her books. There's quite a bit of evidence that he used um, the ethics of ambiguity to um, think about um, the, the the way that he talks about ethical the the framing of encounters and the way that he. Um, talks about ambiguity without calling it that, um, in terms of the the um, interpolation of black bodies in white spaces. And I thought about Fanon and Beauvoir together and wanted to more directly take up the influence that Fanon had on Beauvoir, that Beauvoir had on Fanon. Um, but I was also, thought a way into that conversation would be through this case of Jamila Bupacha. Jamila Bupacha was a woman who was accused of planting, she was accused of being an FLN um, supporter, an FLN agent who had planted a bomb. That evidence was never clear about whether she really was part of that or not. But regardless, she was taken in by French authorities in Algiers, and and she was raped with a bottle, and it was a very famous case, and Gassil um, her lawyer, came to Simone de Beauvoir and asked Beauvoir to publicize her case, and Beauvoir did, and she wrote an important editorial in Le Monde, and um, she worked with Halimi to put together um, a book about The Bupacha incident and what it meant in terms of um, the complicity of the French, not only in developing torture techniques in Algeria, but also in turning a blind eye um, in terms of their own responsibility for the way that um, that people in the colony were treated, and the way that Algerians were treated in France as well. So um, Beauvoir felt a, quite a, a responsibility. She did speak for Bupacha, and she didn't see that as a problem. She saw herself as an ally of Bupacha, who could um, talk about her case and um, make it um, clear that this was happening in a way that Bupacha likely could not do herself, nor even could her lawyer do it herself. By this time, Beauvoir was a very... um, famous intellectual. And French intellectuals are um, much more listened to than (laughs) American intellectuals, and especially at this time. So Beaufort was able to do that. It also provided her an opportunity, or at least in the way that I see it, and I read the case, um, to think about the different levels of um, oppression, as well as different kinds of encounters from the intimate to the nation to the structural and the international and the colonial um, and how those um, uh, work with and against each other in a case like this. So not only is it an important piece to get the word out about what was happening, what French police were doing in the name of the French nation in Algeria, but it ends up being a really theoretically and politically rich exploration that Beauvoir provides of um, the treatment of a woman of color, a woman of the colonies by French police, and to think through her own relationship as a French woman to this other woman. And I, it's a very exciting, um, and quite, um, Uh, detailed analysis of all those different kinds of relationships. So for me, that was really important. Um, And I was putting it together with um, Fanon's work on Algeria unveiled um, that essay that he has. Also, I I did a lot of reading of Fanon. I've I've read Fanon for years, but um, was thinking about Vanone's Algeria unveiled, particularly in this chapter, because there he talks about the role of the Algerian woman, how she is thought about it by the French, but he's not as good as thinking, <laughs> as thinking about how the Algerian woman is thought about by the Algerian revolutionary.
0: And, and, that's, and that's what you do a, an interesting job with, I thought.
1: That's what I was trying to do, yeah and i Definitely.
0: think you you did i mean i i think that, that that you know sort of understanding the different perspectives that you're sort of again the encounters i mm-hmm. your your word is apt um in this section of the book in terms of understanding colonialism from so many different different entry points um yeah. and and the corrupting qualities or nature that it can have that it did have in in particular situations in different countries also Um, and I thought that that was a really, really interesting way that you discuss this in this section. Um, and, you know, taught me a lot that I didn't know about a number of these sort of encounters that were, um, that the Beauvoir was going through, but also in terms of Richard Wright and, and sort of where the United States comes into encountering some of these difficulties and still not necessarily encountering them. Um, But I also wanted to take you to the last section of your book um, that concentrates on what you call feminist friendship and the connections to freedom. Um, And this is the friends section where Lars von Trier gets a little bit of a running room from you. (laughs) Right. He comes back. But you you sort of interestingly connect... um, Beauvoir with um, Alison Bechdel and famously the Bechdel test, which you also discuss as the Bechdel task. Um, Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the sort of uh, popular culture icons and, and artifacts that you integrate into this section on friends um, and friendship uh, and how, you know, this also fits into, An understanding of Beauvoir's political thought.
1: This section is really inspired for me also by The Second Sex. Um, In The Second Sex, when in the first volume of The Second Sex, Beauvoir talks about myths of women and that whole volume is really from the perspective of men. Men who write history, men who are scientists, theologians, fiction writers, poets, running the whole gamut and how women, who is singularized into woman, is thought about and idealized or villainized in all that work. So volume one is really about the myths of woman from the male perspective. Volume two of The Second Sex is about women's experience. And like in volume one, um, in volume one, Beauvoir uses so many different sources. She's not very disciplined with her sources. And that's actually something I love about her. I'm not very disciplined. I'm a disciplined worker and a disciplined writer, but I'm not very disciplined with my sources. I like to use a lot of different things. You're curious. I guess, yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. Um, But in any case, she's curious too, or at least she's willing to delve into a lot of different kinds of books and think with a lot of different kinds of people um, and a lot of different kinds of perspectives. And in volume two of The Second Sex, we get all sort of smushed together, um, evidence from novels, evidence from um, correspondences, evidence from women that Beauvoir is talking to who are her friends or acquaintances. Um, evidence from um, just all over the place about women's lives as they live it and the huge variety of perspectives and a huge variety of experiences that can never ever be captured um, under any idea of woman. And thinking about the way that Beauvoir did that, and she also is, you know, she, she was an avid um, film buff. She loved to go to the movies. She was a big reader of novels. Um, and I identify with some of those aspects of, um, of her. She liked <laughs> popular culture too. Yes, she liked <laughs> popular culture too. And I like popular culture a lot. And so, I mean, in this section, I decided to be okay with my desire to bring in some kind of popular culture sources. I've always been, I love Alison Bechdel, um, and I always enjoyed Dykes to Watch Out For, but I especially like Fun Home and Are You My Mother. But this um, this comic from Dykes to Watch Out For, um, about which was the source of the Bechdel rule, is um, a rule for deciding whether a film is feminist or not. And the rule is that it has to have, um, two women who are two named women who that's number one, who speak to each other. Number two, number three, about something other than men. And it's a very, if you think about it, it seems like a very low, low bar. When you actually have that rule in your head, I've done this with my students in my feminist film class. Like there's so many movies that don't meet that bar. It's amazing. So once you have this in your head, you can't get it out of your head. So. I brought Bechtel in there because I knew I was going to be working with um, film in the chapter and uh, in the chapters of this section. And I was thinking about Bechtel also because, of course, gender, sexuality and uh, race and um, family ideas of home. Um, All kinds of encounters are very central for Bechdel, too. And so I saw some affinities there in their approaches to the world. And I thought about how the, the, the rule or uh, the Bechdel test, the Bechdel rule or the Bechdel test could be my Bechdel task in terms of thinking about feminist films and the or film as feminist or not, and whether they pass or fail these rules. And there's also one more aspect to this. Um, part of what I'm doing in that final section is having different women reach out to each other um, in terms of um, intellectual affinities, and by putting them in new conversations, um, I find that each of them are transformed. So suddenly when we put Beauvoir in conversation with Bechdel, the work of each of them is transformed. And I found that it was a particularly kind of interesting conjunction, not only because they're both working on gender and sexuality and um, that there's this common sense of encounter that's running through the work of both of them, but also because it opened up a new way for me to think about Beauvoir's own love and a film and the way that she thought about films. And for Bechdel to think with kind of a second wave feminist about um, those kinds of of structures and dynamics that that Beauvoir was identifying. So making them essentially friends to each other, um, I was trying to have uh, some new ways of seeing each of them emerge. I don't work with Bechdel a lot, but she is very much there in the background for me. I set up the chapter to think about it in terms of the Bechdel test or rule and make it my Bechdel task as a way to kind of think about, um, how we see women and in popular culture. So that was, that was kind of what I was working with.
0: And I think, I mean, I think you're right. It's it's not that it's all about Alison Bechdel, but it's kind of a little bit of a framework. It's a
1: framework.
0: You you know, you sort of do a really good job of then mapping that onto Beauvoir and and her her sort of mapping and analysis onto a number of popular culture artifacts, particularly films that you know you sort of are. I'm curious about um, how you chose them and and to some degree what you learned from this sort of dual analysis
1: Part of the way I chose them was just by um, attraction and inclination. So, in one of those chapters, for instance, I'd been working with Bontrier so much. So, Bontrier's film Nymphomaniac shows up. And um, I love that film. And I really wanted to talk about it. And I really wanted to think about the way that women's violence is seen and interpreted in certain iterations of popular culture and in 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 that chapter i'm working with three different very different kinds of films one is by a feminist director Chantal ackerman someone who i also absolutely love um and her film called jean Mon, which is a very avant-garde film and it's like almost four hours long and barely anyone's seen it um but um, but more people are starting to see it Ackerman um, died recently and her films are are having kind of a comeback which is wonderful. Um, So Ackerman's film, and then um, the film Gone Girl by um, David Finch, and then the Lars von Trier film. And one thing that brings my reading of those films together is they all, of course, have women at their center, but they also have women who are committing violence at their center. And um, in The Second Sex, there's a, a a whole thread about violence that runs through the book that we haven't talked about at all in this conversation, yes. but it's something that's very important to me in the book because in the encounters of en- with enemies, um, Beauvoir and R, and then Beauvoir with Von Trier, we're confronting um, both intimate political and structural, all intimate political and structural violence, a violence that is so ugly and so abhorrent. And um, we just want to turn away. It's hard to face up to it to see this as something that one person can do to another person it's its almost incomprehensible but of course it is comprehensible and it happens so there's that section on violence um right the section on right and finone talks about violence in a different kind of way um trying to think with our allies from the left how to get the world that we want or move toward the world we want without inflicting violence, without perpetuating it, without repeating it. Um, Fanon is very um, clear that there's a kind of a repetition compulsion. Um, Fanon is a psychoanalyst and he's quite uh, aware of this repetition compulsion in terms of violence. Wright is quite aware of it too when he goes goes to Ghana and he's thinking about about Kwame Nkrumah's um, regime in, in Ghana and that wonderful new moment when um, when Ghana is becoming a country and and, and is not a colonial. In- Uh, entity anymore but what that means and how we get to a new place and of course we know with Algeria so I won't go on and on about violence but violence is a theme that runs through the book and so when I think in this section on friends and 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 feminist friends um, violence appears again because um, in that part it's women committing violence against men women doing violence to each other and how we think about women committing violence and the representations of that that are in in culture why it's a lot worse seemingly for women to commit violence and then of course there's a there's a connection back to Jamila Bupacha um, which she's seen as a violent and dangerous woman because she's non-white. She's part of the FLN and she has, um, incredible violence visited on her by French officials, um, as a punishment just for her identity, quite honestly. So, um, so there's also that, that kind of sense of violence running through that whole section.
0: And, And you, I mean, you do point out in a lot of the book, the issue of violence. And I think, um, that the idea of the encounter also is one where it it can be a communal or um, communally positive, but it's also, as you pointed out earlier in the conversation, it's a question of choice. It can go in another direction. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's that, that fragility of, of understanding the encounter um, that's important also in terms of the, the sort of interpretation that you're exploring with regard to uh, her work in particular and, and the role of violence um, that it's always there. Um, I think is one of the things that I've, I've learned from reading the book is how, how much it's, it's always there.
1: Absolutely. It's always there. And, and Beauvoir is so, I mean, I learned that from Beauvoir she's so clear about that. Um, and not, she just will not disavow it. She, and that is what makes her, I think a a kind of a realistic thinker. Um, but yet, as you already said, there's a moment of possibility or choice, um, also, and that is that held out by Beauvoir as also a choice we can make in terms of our politics as to, um, what we could do differently and collectively, how we can think about these things differently and the kinds of violence that people are um, subject to. And I mean, Beauvoir talks about it at every, in, in so many different manifestations and so many different levels she talks about linguistic violence at length in the section on the data of biology in the second sex, for example. So it's not just structural violence, not just physical violence, it's ontological violence, it's linguistic violence. And she thinks about these violences and their relationship to each other and tries to grapple with ways that as allies and friends and even in confrontations with enemies, what we can understand about how we can make different kinds of choices to, I guess, save ourselves, make our lives better, um, try and make our lives better for others, for the collectivity. And again, Beauvoir is an individualist thinker. I mean, some, um, some scholars of Beauvoir, I think, have gone far, far too um, in the direction of talking about her as having a kind of theory of an individual, the theory of the individual and how important that is to her. Individuals are important to Beauvoir and she does talk about the individual, but she Always emphasizes the individual and in relationship to collectivity, and a word that I haven't used yet, which I can't believe, is oppression, <laughs> because oppression is absolutely central to how um, she enacts her politics. Um, in enacting politics, in in, in, in if politics with Beauvoir is about enhancing freedom and. Diminishing oppression wherever we can, enhancing freedom for the collectivity and for the individual, but diminishing oppression, fighting against oppression. I mean, she's a long, time, she was very clearly on the left, a fellow traveler with communists, although she rejected communism in the sense that it rejects the in-between, and it tries to fill in an ideology um, in the place of the responsibility that we all have to each other. So in that sense, she found it, um, she ultimately didn't find that that communism did what she wanted it to for her politically and philosophically, but, um, but you know, she's on the left. Yeah. And, and I,
0: you know, and I think the way that you just explained it, that the, the idea of how to achieve the freedom for the individual in context, also the freedom for the collective and the diminution of oppression, the diminution potentially, or the, the diminution to, limit violence um, is also what I was learning from your interpretation and your analysis um, yes of a, of these many sort of you know cultural artifacts that either she directly engaged with or that you know in terms of you putting them in encounters with her um, we can look at the the sort of ideas in other places and use her her vision and her sort of political theory and if, if you will, to explore um, contemporary cultural artifacts um, that I think you do really nicely in the last section of the book. So Lori, you published this fabulous, beautiful book. What are you
1: working on now? I'm, I'm continuing to work on film (laughs) now. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, working on a book right now, and Chantal Ackerman, who makes an appearance in the book, and I mentioned her in our conversation, um, Agnes Varda and Catherine Breyat. And I choose those three uh, directors because they're all pretty explicitly feminist, but even more important in in terms of the theoretical um, and political connections between them is that they're all staging a crisis, the moral and political crisis that I think are important right now, that are current to us right now, which is the kind of a crisis of critique moment or a critique of critique moment where we don't know what is true. We uh, have lost our faith in facts. um, uh, Our politics is so... Um, based in perspective, that we're not having conversations. And these three filmmakers in particular are um, making films that assume that that is already the case, but talking and but, but showing through these films that we can understand the construction of reality as part of the real itself, and yet look from different perspectives, and particularly those of the oppressed. Since all of them are feminists, they all um, put women at the center of their films and other marginalized populations at the center of their films. So I'm really excited to be working on these um, three filmmakers um, and thinking about what we can uh, learn from them about something that I'm calling feminist realism.
0: So when you finish that book, will you come back on the new books and political science podcast and talk to me about it?
1: I would love to. Absolutely. fabulous. Yes. <laughs> um,
0: so thank you, Laurie Marceau for talking to me today about politics with Beauvoir, freedom in the encounter. And where can somebody pick up this fabulous new book?
1: Well, the first place to go is to the Duke University Press website, because if you put E17 Marceau in the coupon line, um, you can get the book for a 20% discount Ooh. or no, 30% discount, which brings uh, yeah, which brings it down to like $20. So that's pretty good. Yeah, it's not too expensive. So that's probably the best. Um, that's probably where you should get your book if you possibly can. Okay. for Duke University Press.
0: All right. Thank you for being with me today, Lori. I really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Thank you so much, Lily. I really appreciate it.
0: My pleasure.